This is John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're back for the second or third time, welcome. Thanks for being with us here on this gray, kind of rainy morning in uh, November. Uh, hey, I want to tell you about something that happened this week that I'm so encouraged by. Uh, on Wednesday, a group of 22 of us from Center Church spent a day at a prayer conference, okay? So we met at 6.30 in the morning out there in the parking lot. It was pitch dark. We were basking under the sun of our LED sign out there, you know? And uh, we, we loaded up and we drove about two hours south and we just spent the whole day at a conference, worshiping, talking about prayer, and then just being in prayer, seeking the face of the Lord together. Um, and I want to tell you why I'm so encouraged by that. Uh, because it's been said that when God wants to move, he sets his church to pray. And I want God to move in my life. I want God to move in my life and in my family's life. I want God to move in and through this church. And so I personally am committed, man, to seeking his face and inviting him to move. And I was so encouraged to see so many people that were committed to that as 
well. And, and here's what I would guess. I would guess you're not just here because you have nothing else to do on Sunday morning. Like I would guess you're here because you want God to move in your life and you want God to move in your marriage and in your family and in, in this community. And so my invitation to you, man, is join me in seeking the face of God. Join me in going to him in prayer and saying, God, you, you want us to be a house of prayer for all nations. Help us to do that. And if that's you, you say, Josh, I want to do that. Or I just want to grow in prayer. I want to learn how to pray. The place to be is every Sunday morning from 8 to 8.30, we have a prayer meeting. It happens on the second wing of our kids' floor, what I refer to as the upper room. Okay, I think that's a good joke. Um, anyway, and uh, man, we, we get together, man, we just pray and we seek the Lord's face. And if, if you just want to learn how to pray, the best way to do that is to listen to other people pray. I always leave that that meeting profoundly encouraged about all the ministry that's already happened before anyone gets here for a service. And I know you will as well. So it's every Sunday, 8 to 8.30. We'd love to have you. And before we jump into John 4, I just want to ask God to help us pray. I mean, I think that's a good prayer to, to pray. God, help us pray more, and then we'll jump in. So would you join me in that? Lord, you've told us that your desire is that, um, man, the, the church would be called a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, when we pray, you move. And so God, would you just stir us up? Would you stir us up individually? Would you stir us up corporately to be a people that prays, that seeks your face, that doesn't just depend on plans, but man, God plans well, but also prays fervently. So God, give me the grace as, as one of the pastors to do that. Give our elder team the grace to do that. Give our church just the grace to become a church that prays and sees you answer prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you'd open our eyes that we'd see what you have for, it, for us today in John chapter four. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen, amen. If you have a Bible, you can meet me in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So we are in the fourth week of a series that we're calling Come and See. Come and See. And here's what we've said. Uh, we all have a picture of Jesus in our minds that has been shaped to some degree by the culture that we were reared in. So I've told you that my image of Jesus is that he's a six foot two European with blonde hair and blue eyes, right? Which would be very strange for a first century Middle Eastern Jew, right? Like that's just an inaccurate view of Jesus that has been shaped in me by just movies I've watched and pictures I've seen. And my guess is that you you have some similar preconceived notions about who Jesus is. Well, the question is not who do we think Jesus is. The question is who is Jesus? What is the scriptures? What do the scriptures tell us about who he is? And so we're walking through the Gospel of John, and we're looking at nine different interactions that Jesus has in the Gospel of John to really get at that question: Who is Jesus really? And if you were here last week, Jesus interacted with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter three. Nicodemus was traditional; he was moral, and he was religious. Okay, he was kind of a classic church kind of person, right? So in your minds, if you think about like man, who is a church kind of person? Nicodemus fits that bill exactly. And you might think, yeah, of course, Josh, Jesus came for church people. I'm not really a church person, so this isn't for me. Well, then I think you're going to enjoy today because in John chapter four, Jesus goes out of his way to pursue a woman who could not have been more different than Nicodemus. Okay. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was very upstanding. She had a checkered past. The point that John is making is that every kind of person needs Jesus, and Jesus came for every kind of person. Every kind of person needs Jesus, and Jesus came for every kind of person. So if you're here and you fit in the category of every kind of person, congratulations, you need Jesus, and Jesus came for you. Okay, that is what John is doing in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Now, the woman we're going to meet was seeking satisfaction in romance. That's what she'd been doing. And she had found romance, but she hadn't found satisfaction. And I wonder if you can relate with that this morning. Have you ever looked for satisfaction in something but come up wanting? Man, have you ever had a hard time being satisfied in your stage of life, being content in your relational status or being fulfilled at work? Man, have you ever had a longing in your soul that you said, there must be something more than this, I'm just not fulfilled? Man, if you can relate with that at all, then Jesus has a message for you this morning, a message about satisfaction that comes from above and never runs out. 
So we're going to walk through this text, kind of explaining as I go, and then we're going to land on, man, what does this mean for us today and that longing that we all have in our souls for transcendence? Look at verse 1 with me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So after Jesus spoke with Nicodemus in chapter 3, he went out into the countryside, and there he was preaching and teaching and ministering in the same vicinity as John the Baptist. Well, as is often the case with popular preachers, John and Jesus loved one another. They were big fans and supporters of one another, but their followers had a tendency to be competitive, okay? And to make matters worse, the Pharisees were trying to stir up rivalry and dissension among Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. So Jesus finds out about this, and he's like, I'm out of here. I'm not all about that. So he leaves Judea, which is down here, and he goes to Galilee, which is up here, okay? So Judea is in the south, and Galilee is in the north, verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, there are three ways to get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. You could go straight through Samaria. That would take three days of walking. Or you could go around Samaria to the east or to the west. If you went around, it would take six days of walking. All right, so raise your hand if you would rather walk three days than six days. Anybody? Me, just me. Great, everybody. Okay, here's, the, this, here's what's crazy. Almost every Jew at the time of Jesus chose to walk around Samaria rather than through it. The reason was that they could not stand Samaritans. I mean, they hated these people. Now, think about how much do you have to hate someone to add three days to your walking journey? I don't like to walk to the fridge during a movie, right? And yet they like walked three miles or three days around Samaria because that is just how much they detested the Samaritans. So to understand what's going on, we have to know a little bit about who the Samaritans were. So bear with me. We're going to do some ancient history. I know that's what you're looking for this morning. You're like, Josh, can you tell me about the Assyrian Empire? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. In 727 BC, the Assyrians were big bad dudes. They came down, they conquered the northern part of Israel, the top 10 tribes of Israel. And they took a bunch of them off into exile, but they left some of them, let some of the Jews stay there. Well, a subgroup of that group of Jews decided to intermarry with their conquerors. Okay, so Jews married Assyrians, they mixed their religion, they mixed their culture, they mixed their ethnicity. And they watered down the faith of their fathers. And they actually ended up taking out about half of the Old Testament. They said, ah, no, we're not gonna do that anymore. We're going to just keep the books that we like. And then they actually built their own temple. And they said, we're not going to go to Jerusalem anymore. We're going to kind of build our own thing and do it our own way and kind of have our own gods um, that we want. That was the Samaritans, okay? So the Jews saw the Samaritans as compromisers and heretics. And the Samaritans saw the Jews as uptight, judgmental. They hated each other, okay? And then add like hundreds and hundreds of years of animosity on top of this. Just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So, man, we have crazy stories of like, of like Jewish teenagers being like, what should we do tonight? I know, let's go set a Samaritan village on fire. That sounds great. And they would go and set a village on fire. And then we have these stories of Samaritans like marauding and attacking Jews as they pass through their territory. Like these groups of people hated one another. Okay, that is why all the Jews walked around Samaria, and yet it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, here's what's interesting. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. I just told you, there were two other routes around, and almost everybody went around Samaria. So in what sense did he have to pass through there? He didn't have to pass through there geographically, but he did have to pass through there because it was on the divine timetable. You see, Jesus Christ knew that there was a woman in Samaria that he was going to meet. He was going to lead her to faith in Christ. And then she was going to be the means of an entire village of Samaritans coming to faith in Christ. Everyone else walked around Samaria, but Jesus walked through it. He didn't care about cultural norms. He didn't care about what the other rabbis were doing. He cared about doing the will of his father and reaching lost souls. Friends, to make an impact for the kingdom of God, you will have to make decisions that your family, friends, and classmates don't understand. 
You cannot make an impact for the kingdom of God. You cannot change this world for the better if you just go along with the current. If you just do what all of your classmates and all of your peers and all of your coworkers are doing, you will make no difference. If you choose to walk around Samaria, you will not reach anyone in Samaria. But if you want to make an impact, if you want to change things, if you want to leave a legacy, you're going to have to choose to do the harder and the less comfortable thing and the thing that sometimes your parents and your friends and your classmates and whoever isn't going to understand, and you're going to have to walk through Samaria when everybody else was walking around Samaria. Now, we could apply that principle in about a dozen different ways, and I hope that you apply it in your life. But I want to take a minute, and I want to apply it to our college students. Okay, so if you're a college student here, man, listen up. Give me your eyes, okay? All right, every summer we host something called City Project. City Project is an eight-week discipleship greenhouse, man, that will prepare you for a lifetime of faithfulness. You'll learn the Bible. You'll learn theology. You'll live in community, and you'll participate in God's mission around the world. It is hard to find truly life-changing experiences, but this is one of them. And in the providence of God, you are a part of a church that offers it. And so if you are a college student, you need to seriously consider doing City Project this summer. But to do so will require you to walk through Samaria. To do so will require you to be different than your classmates. Because you know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be trying to get internships at Tesla. Right? They're going to be trying to make money so that they can spend it next semester. And your family might not understand. Your friends might not understand. They'll be like, you're ridiculous. You're fanatical. This is too much. So you can go with the current and you can just go get an internship and you can, you know, spend your summer doing whatever in D.C. Or you can have a life-changing spiritual experience that will pay dividends for the rest of your life. Right? You need to seriously consider this. But I'm telling you, in order to do it, you're going to have to walk through Samaria. You're going to have to be willing to not be like your classmates. And you're going to have to push those thoughts of like, I'm getting behind because I didn't do an internship between my first and second year. Just push it down. All you UVA students, <laughs> just chill for a second, Okay. It's going to be okay. You got to push it down. You got to ask God, do you want me to do this? And if the answer is yes, do it. If God says yes, don't say no because you got to go through Samaria. Look, if there's some compelling spiritual reason why you shouldn't do it, fair enough. But if God says yes, if the only reason you're not doing it is because it's going to make you different and you got to do something uncomfortable and you got to go through Samaria, man, then do it. Man, be like Jesus, walk through Samaria, man, change somebody's life. Verse five. So he, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon, okay? Um, did you notice how many specific details John gives in that little account? He says, hey, it's near this town. It's near this field. It was this well. Jesus sat down because he was tired, and it was around noon. Why does John provide all of those historical details? Have you ever been reading the Bible and wondered, like, why in the world do I now know who the, who the Roman governor was at this time? You ever done that? You know, you're like, why? Like, why? I don't know where any of these places are. Why is this in the Bible? The reason that it's in the Bible is the Bible is a real book about real people in real places. Okay, so Jacob's well, you can go and see it. It's still there. You can get on a plane at Charlottesville Airport and then make 17 connections, and eventually you'll get to Israel, and then you can go to Jacob's well. It'll take you about four days. Um, so, that, I mean, you could go because the Bible and Christi Christianity is not based on allegory. It's not based on myth. It's not based on fable. It's based on objective historical events. So that's why John is including all this stuff. He's like, because you can go there. This thing actually happened. This isn't just some sort of it, you know, myth that he made up. This actually happened. Jesus has been walking. He was tired, so he sat down by a well. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It was lunchtime. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, Jesus broke three cultural norms in this conversation, uh, in this conversation with the woman. Number one, men were not supposed to speak to women in public. 
Number two, Jews weren't supposed to ask Samaritans for favors. Number three, Jews were not supposed to use the same drinking vessel that a Samaritan had, uh, that a Samaritan had used. So first, Jesus broke through geographic barriers to reach this woman, right? He went through Samaria. Now he's breaking cultural barriers to reach this woman. Man, and he has done the same thing to reach you and me. I mean, think about it. There's no greater geographic barrier than heaven and earth. There's no greater cultural barrier than heaven and earth. And yet in the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh. He left heaven. He came to earth so that we might be saved. That is how significant you are. That is how significant your soul is. That is how much God loves you, that Jesus Christ overcame all those barriers so that you might be in his kingdom. And if that's true, if you are in his kingdom, Jesus now invites you, calls you, commissions you, commands you to do the same thing to reach others. In the same way that he overcame barriers to reach this woman, he overcame barriers to reach us. We're now called to overcome barriers to reach others. And friends, if we are going to reach others, if we're going to share the gospel, if we're going to make disciples, we are going to have to break some unwritten cultural norms. Because here's the reality. Here's what our cultural moment says. It's not true, but this is what our cultural moment says. Faith is subjective and personal. It's subjective and personal, so you're free to believe in your heart and in your home, but not in public. But the scriptures roundly deny that. The scriptures say, no, faith is objective and public. You're called to believe in your heart, you're called to believe in your home, and you're called to share the gospel publicly with others. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be the person that breaks these unwritten rules. You're going to have to be the guy that talks about church, right? Like you're going to have to be the woman that talks about faith. You're going to have to be the person at work that actually has meaningful conversations, You might be here today, you might be a guest, you might be here because someone broke a cultural norm to invite you to church, right? Welcome, we're glad that you're here, (laughs) right? The reality is if we just go with the current, we will make no impact. If you want to make a difference with your life, you have to turn, you have to swim upstream. And you have to say, you know what, there is something more important in my life than what random cultural influencers think about me. Like my identity doesn't actually come from social media. It doesn't actually come from what my professors say. It doesn't actually come from whatever the executives at Pepsi say or whatever company is trying to tell you what to believe. Hey, here's an idea. Maybe we shouldn't get our theology and our ethics from Coca-Cola. Ever thought about that? So if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to share the gospel, get a little fired up about this, we just we got to be willing to push back against these cultural barriers. And I love how Jesus started this conversation. So this is a good tip. You're like, all right, Josh, you, you got me all fired up. How do I do this? Don't be mean, right? Do what Jesus did. Jesus just asked this woman for a favor. Do you notice that? He was like, hey, I, I'm thirsty. Could I, have, could I have a drink of water? When you lead with need, man, you put someone else in a position of strength. You say, hey, I don't have it all together. I'm not a Christian because I've got my whole act together. I'm a Christian by the grace of God. So I have real needs. Could you help me? And when you do that, you make it easier for other people to share their real needs with you. You know, know, so this could be as easy as like, hey, go to your neighbor. Can I borrow some eggs? Could you help me move my couch? Right? Like, I I don't know how to do this, you know, this thing online. Can you help me? Um, I had a chance to do this last Christmas. So uh, my family has a fireplace in our house, and the previous owners had left a big pile of firewood. So I thought, fantastic, it's Christmas, I'm going to make a fire. The problem is I don't know how to make a fire. So uh, I get out there, and I'm looking at all this firewood. I knew enough to be like, this isn't going to work. So I was like, I need an axe. Well, I don't have an axe. So I went to my neighbor's house, and I was like, hey, man, you got an axe? And he was like, yeah, I've got an axe. I was like, great, do you know how to cut wood? Because I don't. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I know how to do that too. And so, like, you know, he's this big burly guy, and I'm like, thanks, you know. Uh, anyway, he comes over, we, you know, we do the whole thing, cut the wood, make the fire. Um, and so it's great because I got to have a fire. My kids think I'm manly now, which I'm not. Uh, and the second thing is it just started this great relationship. Like, we, we kind of, our relationship went to a new level because, like, man, I just, I was like, hey, I have a need. Could you help me? 
right? So it's just a great practical tip. If you want to start, how do I build a relationship at work or in the neighborhood or whatever? Man, invite other people to serve you, and then they might invite you to serve them in return, okay? So that's what Jesus says. Hey, can I have a drink of water? But the woman's confused. You can tell. She's like, why are you talking to me, right? Like, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We shouldn't be talking. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What's going on? Well, Jesus is steering the conversation towards spiritual truth. He's a master of doing this. Jesus is constantly using the physical world to illustrate spiritual truth. So he's basically saying, hey, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water that would satisfy your soul. But the woman's confused, and I love her honesty because she's like, okay, guy. She's like, you don't have a bucket, and this well is super deep. So, like, where are you going to get the water? Like, are you greater than Jacob, our, you know, our, our, our ancestor who dug this well? Now, it's interesting that they're at Jacob's well. I don't think it's a coincidence because the parallels between her life and Jacob's life are really striking. So Jacob's a guy in the Old Testament, and his name, Jacob, means trickster or deceiver trickster or deceiver, and he lived into that name. So uh, he tricked his older brother into giving him his birthright. He tricked his blind father into giving him his brother's blessing. Then he ran away from his home, his family, and his God. And he spent years running away man, and, and deceiving people and conniving to make a living. But years and years later, after a long time of running away, the Lord walked him down. The Lord chased him down and met him at this place called Bethel and wrestled with him all night. And in the morning, Jacob walked away a totally different man. His name even changed from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which means wrestles with the Lord. You see, this woman's life parallels Jacob's life. Through her lifestyle, she had been running from God for her entire life. Now, we're going to find out that, that she had been very promiscuous, that she had been married five times, and at the point that Jesus talks to her, she was living with a man that was not her husband. Man, she had been running from God. She had been looking for satisfaction in other places. And in this interaction, Jesus is going to walk her down. He's going to be like, I'm coming after you. You've been running away from me, but I'm here. I broke through the, the geographic barrier to get here. I'm breaking through cultural barriers right now. And they're going to wrestle in this conversation. And she's going to walk away changed. She's going to walk away a new woman. And what I wonder this morning is if some of you are here and you're running away from God. And maybe you've been running your whole life. Or maybe you've been running since you got to college. Or maybe you started running when you lost a loved one. I don't know why you're running. I don't know, if, man, if you're angry. I don't know if you're cynical. I don't know if you're hurt. I don't know if you're confused. I don't know if you're scared. Maybe you think Jesus is done with you. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is going to walk you down. He is. He's simply not going to stop coming after you. He's doing it right now. There's a dozen other places you could be this morning. And yet somehow you found yourself into this congregation and Jesus Christ is extending his grace to you through the scriptures and he's saying, I'm coming after you. I left heaven, I came to earth. I've already crossed the greatest barrier. I've given you the scriptures so that you can know my love for you. I am coming after you. Man, he loves you. He's committed to you. He gave up his life so that you could be restored. And this is the appeal that he offers to you that he offered to this woman then, verse 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
So Jesus says, hey, if you drink from this well, you're going to be thirsty again in a few hours. But if you drink the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. The thirst of your soul will be quenched. So what does this mean? Well, Scripture teaches us that we are created in God's image and for a relationship with him. So when God made Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed into him the breath of life. And the very first thing that Adam saw when he opened his eyes was the face of God. And every single one of Adam's descendants has been created with eternity in their heart. You and I were created to find soul satisfaction in a relationship with our creator. To have a personal, intimate relationship with God is what your soul longs for. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, this water, you're going to get thirsty again. You drink this, that water from me, spiritual water, you'll never thirst again. Now, when Jesus mentioned the spring of water that wells up to eternal life, he's referencing Jeremiah 2.13. This is what he says. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You see the connection? And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern was a giant pit that you would dig out to hold water in, but if it got broken, if it cracked, the water would just dissipate. It couldn't hold any water. It became worthless. The only thing you could use it for was, one, it could become a trash heap, or two, it could be a prison. Those are the two things you could use a broken cistern for. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you don't find satisfaction in your creator, you will try to find it in created things, and it will not work. You will go to broken cisterns, and they can't hold water. And if you go there long enough, they're going to make you filthy, and they're going to put you in bondage. And isn't that the testimony of so many of us? That thing that I thought would give me life, I kept going to, and now I'm in bondage to it. That relationship that I thought would finally make me feel beautiful and desirable and worthwhile hasn't done it, and now I feel dirty. Man, I'm in a broken cistern, and I can't get out. Jesus is saying there is a hole in your heart that can only be satisfied by a relationship with your creator. Your insatiable soul can only be satisfied with an everlasting God because you were created as an image bearer of him. And this is not a 21st century existential thing. People have been confessing this all throughout the ages. In the 300s, Augustine of Hippo wrote this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You ever felt that way? Like your heart was restless, like no matter what you accomplish, no matter where you live, or no matter how many good drinks you drink or good food you eat or good friends that you have, that your heart is just never satisfied. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician and theologian, wrote this. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. You ever felt that? Man, you just keep stuffing things down in there and it keeps not working. It's because nothing in this created world can fill the gap of your creator God. Um, Even thoughtful, secular people understand this and grasp this. Like the great 20th century American theologian, Katy Perry, So a few years ago, Katy Perry became the third American artist to sell 100 million digital singles. Think about that. 100 million digital singles. This is what she tweeted on that day. 100 million singles and still insecure. 100 million singles and still insecure. It doesn't matter how many singles you sell. It won't satisfy your soul. God is the only fountain that can satisfy. So how does this work, Josh? Like, What is living water? What's he talking about? Well, the living water that Jesus is referring to is the Holy Spirit. You see, when you become a Christian, when you repent and believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and mediates a constant relationship between you and your creator. And so you have this bubbling up in your soul of satisfaction. 
And many believers can testify that it's possible to be deeply and profoundly fulfilled in consent in Christ, even when your life is falling apart. Man, if the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within you, that is what Jesus is talking about. Well, the woman's interested. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, why does Jesus get into that? I mean, the woman's interested, right? It's like she's leaning in. I mean, Jesus knows her checkered past. He knows that she's not proud of this. So like, why is he bringing up, why is he bringing up all the men and why is he bringing up all the relationships? Why not just like deal with that later? Well, the reason is that the only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed of the gospel is to plow it up with conviction. The only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed of the gospel is to plow it up with conviction. My experience has been that a lot of people are interested in living water, but they're not as interested as turning away from their broken cisterns. This woman wanted living water. She just didn't want to, she just didn't want to deal with the sinful lifestyle she'd been living. I'd like that part of Jesus, but I don't want the holy part of Jesus. I think that's a word for our culture. Man, I want the parts of the Bible I like that make me feel good. I don't, I don't really want the parts of the Bible that challenge me. I would like to make God in my image. Could I do that? Jesus says, you can't. God has is, God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. What's interesting is that the woman's statement, I have no husband, is the shortest thing that she says in this entire conversation. I think the reason for that is she's feeling conviction. And one of the most biblical ways to think about conviction comes from Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Conviction is when my mouth is stopped before the Lord. You see, in our hubris, we talk a lot. We complain about God, we criticize God, we edit God's word. We say things like, prove yourself to me, God. If you don't give me blank, I'm not going to believe in you. We act as though God is on trial and we're the judge at the bench. But the reality is that the opposite of that is true. God is not on trial and you are not at the bench. You are on trial and he is at the bench. Like, like you're not gonna die and God's not gonna stand before you and you're gonna be like, well, God, I wasn't very happy with how you performed. It's just not gonna happen. It doesn't even make sense, right? It'd be like an ant demanding that I prove myself to it. And I'd be like, I'm, not, I'm just gonna crush you, right? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And yet that, in our hubris, that's how we act. That's how we think. That's how we live until the Holy Spirit starts to bring conviction into our life. You see, when you start to experience conviction, your mouth shuts. And all of a sudden, you, you stop complaining, you stop criticizing, you stop rationalizing, you stop blame shifting, and you start listening. And friends, for conversion to occur, for you to grow in your relationship with God, there must come a moment when you stop talking and you start listening. Where your mouth is shut, and your ears are open, and you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's what is required. But that's very uncomfortable. It's very, very uncomfortable, so we often do what this woman did. Verse 19, the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, you think? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this woman says, Hold on, hold on. Let's stop talking about me and my stuff. Let's talk about theoretical nonsense. Let's talk about lots of secondary questions that aren't really, that aren't really the point. Let's talk about something that has nothing to do with me and my personal need to respond to you. Let's like argue about theology between the Jews and the Samaritans. This still happens today, doesn't it? I've been having conversations with people sharing the gospel and all of a sudden they're like so concerned about these random secondary questions. 
Right? Have you ever done this? Like you feel God convicting you, but then you come up with like a string of questions. You're like, no, I don't actually have to deal with that. Maybe this is happening to you right now. I mean, maybe you're, you're here and you've been going from relationship to relationship looking for satisfaction. Maybe you've been looking for it on the playing field or in the classroom or in the boardroom or in the bedroom and it isn't working. Your cisterns are broken and Jesus wants to talk to you about it. But it's hard to talk about. It's very personal. And so what happens? Well, you start bringing up tons of secondary questions. What about evolution? What about evil in the world? What about that crazy church I saw on CNN? What about gender and sexuality? Right? Those aren't illegitimate questions. They're just not the primary question. What, a lot of times what happens is we don't want to deal with the primary personal question of like, have I repented and given my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And so instead, we want to talk about secondary and tertiary questions that aren't illegitimate but aren't primary. The better question is, who is Jesus? Because look, if he's not God, then don't listen to anything he says. Like if he's not God, then just let CNN tell you what to believe. Just do that. But if he is God, it changes everything. And now all of a sudden the question is not what would I like to be true, but like what, what does Jesus tell me in his word is true and how do I shape my life according to it? So that's why it's, it's, it's the, wrong, the wrong way to come at this is to be like, let's talk about all the secondary and tertiary questions and then decide on Jesus. No, don't do that. Answer the question, who is Jesus? If you reject him as the son of God and you say, no, he was a crazy demon possessed. I mean, he was just absolutely lunatic. Then don't, don't listen to any of it. But if you look at the evidence and you conclude no, he, he's the divine son of God who calls me to repent and follow him. Okay, now all the rest of our life has to fall into line with that. But that's hard. It's hard to deal with real personal stuff. This woman didn't want to deal with it. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to real quickly address her question and then like bring it back to the main point. This is what he says. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying, because of what I'm going to accomplish on the cross, a day is coming when you don't have to worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. I'm the new temple, he's saying. So if my spirit is dwelling within you, you can worship no matter where you are. On, on this side of the cross... It's not about worship in a particular place. It's about worship in a particular way. So you can worship God here at 475 Westfield Road just like you can, you know, at the temple in Jerusalem. Because if the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, it's not about worshiping in a particular place. It's about worshiping in a particular way. God is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I could preach an entire sermon on what that means. I don't have time, okay? So bear with me. What does it mean to worship in spirit? I think it means people who worship enthusiastically and with their whole heart that you're not bored when you come into the presence of the living God. Now that has to be appropriate to your personality and you know the whole thing, but it means like wholehearted devotion, worship in spirit. And then what does it mean to worship in truth? What well, means you worship God according to the scriptures, according to strong theology. You see, you can't love God if you don't have right thoughts about God. As one author put it, you cannot love what you do not know, right? So our worship isn't just like enthusiastic, but it needs to be grounded in the scriptures and in theology. Okay, so that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying those are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. Verse 25, the woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, here's what's interesting. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah. And that's the only way that she'd be able to say that. 
But they didn't believe in a Messiah who would reconcile them with God. They believed in a Messiah who would bring political reform and military triumph. Right? So she was like, yeah, I believe a Messiah is going to come. She just didn't know that she was supposed to find satisfaction for her soul in her relationship with God. She thought like, yeah, I think all the problems are going to be solved by politics and military. Man, the Bible's so irrelevant, isn't it? Uh-oh. And then we do the same thing today. It's like we, we think, oh, no, all the problems are like politics and military and social stuff. And it's like all, that's, all that matters and all that's fine. But it's like none of that is going to solve the fundamental issue that we have in the heart. And you might be here today and you might be pro-God or kind of generally pro-Jesus or pro-church. But maybe you've just not recognized that what Jesus wants to do in your life is be the center of it. And to reconcile you into a relationship with your creator and give you the living water that satisfies. She didn't understand that. She thought, oh yeah, God's just all about all these external things. And Jesus is like, no, I'm primarily about internal transformation that results in external change. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. It's very shocking. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So at just this moment, the disciples come back from buying food and they're surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. And we're told that, man, then she went into town and told everybody what she had found. Now, what's interesting um, is that we don't know exactly when she comes to faith in Christ. But at some point in this, in this interaction, man, she repents and puts her faith in Christ and ends up becoming this incredible evangelist who leads most of her town to faith. And John, John notes for us that she leaves her water jar. Do you notice that? Isn't that kind of a funny detail? Why do you think he mentioned that? It could be really practical. I mean, it could be she intended to come back. It could be she wanted to make sure Jesus had something to drink. But I wonder if John included that as a symbol, a symbol that she had left her old cistern behind because she had a new source of living water. She left her old cistern behind and then did for others what Jesus had done for her. She overcame barriers to go and herald the news. So in this interaction, we see Jesus go after a very different kind of person, very different from Nicodemus, but meet her and wrestle with her and change her. She was drinking from broken cisterns, but she found in Christ a source of living water that satisfied her soul. So here's the question for you and for me this morning. Have you left your water jars behind or are you still going to cisterns that can hold no water? Have you left your water jars behind or are you still going to cisterns that can hold no water? You see, in many ways, this woman represents all of us. Man, we all have a tendency to go after temporary things that leave us wanting. If you're a Christian, you have a tendency to do that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have a tendency to do that. I have a tendency to do that. Okay, the thing that I go after that I think is gonna satisfy me is church growth. In every stage of our church, no matter what size it's been, I think when we get to the next size, then I'm gonna be content. And then I'm going to be happy. And then I'm going to feel competent. And then I'm going to feel like a good leader. Right? And then we get to that next stage and it's not enough. In the next stage, I'm going to feel that way. Man, when we, when we finally get a building, I'm going to feel that way. Four weeks in, it hadn't done it for me. <laughs> I love this building. I love you guys. But it just simply can't satisfy my soul. And yet I find myself going back to that again and again and again and again. I wonder if you can resonate with that this morning. Like, I wonder if, if you're here and you are a single adult and you thought you'd be married by now. And you want to be married. And like, that's a good and godly desire. But I wonder if deep in your soul, you think, when I'm married, then I'll be content. 
then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be fulfilled in Christ. And friend, I'm just here to tell you it's not gonna work. Maybe you're here and uh, you're married and you have a good and godly desire for children. And I pray that God fulfills that desire, whether biologically or through adoption or foster care. But friend, I'm just here to tell you that children aren't gonna satisfy your soul. Maybe you really, really want grandchildren. They're not gonna satisfy your soul. Maybe you're a student and you think, man, if I could just, if I can get a good GPA and I can get accepted into the right grad school and then I can go and work at the right consulting company in the right city, then I'm gonna be happy. And it's not gonna work. And I can prove it to you because we've got people in our church who have done it. And they're like, I wasted 25 years of my life, man, chasing some corporate dream and I got it and it didn't satisfy my soul. Nothing in this world can satisfy your soul. Doesn't matter what you stick down there. Doesn't matter how expensive or shiny it is. Do you know what culture is gonna tell you? Culture tells you if you would just express yourself at all costs, you'll be happy. Have you ever met anyone that's done that? They're devastated. The great lie that our culture tells us is if you would just chase sexual expression and just do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, you would be happy. Have you ever met anyone that's done that? They're not happy. They're usually extraordinarily stressed and depressed. Guys, God created us to find our satisfaction in him. It doesn't matter what you shove down there. It's not gonna do it. It doesn't matter if you, if you shove religion or rebellion into your heart. It's not gonna fill the gap. But how many of us spend our lives chasing after things that can't do it? That's, that's my story. I'm, a, I'm the pastor of the church and I'm doing it. And I can't imagine I'm the only one. And so what this text does, it comes through 2,000 years off the page and gets in our business and is like, where are you looking for satisfaction and is it doing it? What system are you going to and is it quenching your thirst? Right, I, I don't know you all very well, so there's probably a million things that you might be looking to. I, I think there's three big ones that I've experienced, three big ones that I've seen pastorally. Places people look for satisfaction. The first one is the approval of man. The approval of man. If I get her to like me, him to call me back, this many likes on my post, if my boyfriend is happy, if my boss is happy, if my friends are happy, if my professors like me, if my coach likes me, man, then I'll be happy. The second one is material possessions. Man, if I, if I could get a new house, if I could get that kind of car, if I could get this color cabinets, if I could get quartz in my kitchen, Right, if I could have this kind of wedding venue, if we could go on those kinds of vacations, if I could move to that kind of city and live in that kind of loft apartment, if I could wear Madewell jeans, right? Guys, billions of dollars are spent every single day selling you the lie that if you get the next thing, it will satisfy your soul. It's just a lie. Doesn't matter how many things you own, it won't satisfy your soul. Here's the last one. And I think this one is very pervasive. It's simply pleasure. It's the lie that I was created to feel a certain way and what I feel is real. And so if I satisfy my feelings, I will be happy. This could apply in any number of ways. This is, I wanna feel powerful. I wanna feel beautiful. I wanna feel desirable. I wanna feel comfortable. I wanna feel financially secure. I wanna feel sexually expressed. I wanna feel recognized at work on and on and on. Guys, those are all broken cisterns. They cannot satisfy your soul. No amount of approval from people can replace the approval you were designed to receive from your creator. 
And if you chase the approval of man, it will leave you overcommitted and anxious. No material possession can replace the glory of God your soul was created to feast upon. I mean, raise your hand if, if the last time you got an iPhone, you said, that's it, I'm eternally satisfied. No, you dropped it in the toilet last night. Right? It's just, it's just but it's ridiculous. But we just keep going around. One, one of my pastor uh, friends calls it the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Because he's like, you drive around the cul-de-sac, you're like, I'll take that car and I'll take that house and I'll take those pants and I'll take that iPhone. And you get around at the beginning, you're like, oh, it didn't do it anymore. I know, I need to go around again. It's just like, it's like, it's, what, are we, what are we doing? Material possessions isn't going to do it. And pleasure's not going to do it. I think that's the most powerful of these three. Because we live in a culture that's obsessed with pleasure and obsessed with feeling in a certain way. But guys, every earthly pleasure is supposed to be like a ray of the sun. Where the ray of the sun hits your face, you're supposed to look up to the source. And your soul was designed to experience the eternal pleasure of knowing God. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not cheap, temporary, worldly pleasures, but deep, abiding, eternal pleasures. In a relationship with Christ, God is not calling you away from pleasure. He's calling you to true pleasure. And every good thing in this world is designed to point you to him. So what are you drinking from, and is it quenching your thirst? Underneath of most of your sin is a longing. That's why it's so hard to stay sexually pure. Underneath of it is a longing. That's why it's so hard to be generous with your finances because underneath of it is a longing. I go on and on. What we find in this text is that this woman was looking for satisfaction in romance, but she turned from those cisterns and she found true satisfaction in Christ. And that can be the case for you today. And it can be the case for you today, even though you and I have committed two evils against the Lord. I mean, the first evil is that we've forsaken him. The second evil is that we've sought satisfaction elsewhere. We've, we've been adulterous spiritually. And yet, you can still receive the living water of Christ. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ went thirsty for you. There's only one other place in the Gospel of John that we're told that Jesus was thirsty. It's in John chapter 19 when he was on the cross. I thirst were the words Jesus spoke just before he cried out, it is finished and paid for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus Christ went thirsty so that we don't have to. He suffered our penalty so that through repentance and faith, we could be brought into a relationship with our creator and have our souls satisfied in him. So if you bow your heads with me, I just want to give us a chance to respond to this today. I want to give us a chance to respond to the scriptures and respond to this message of hope. If you're here this morning and you resonate with the Samaritan woman, you've looked other places and you've come up thirsty, I want to encourage you to begin a relationship with your creator through Jesus Christ. You can do that by admitting that you are a sinner. God, I've forsaken you, the fountain of living water, and I've looked elsewhere. By believing that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation. That he went thirsty so that you don't have to be thirsty. That he suffered so that you could be blessed. And finally, by confessing him as your savior and Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, you are my fountain of living water. I'm not going anywhere else. You are the Lord. I hand the reins of my life over to you. I've tried it my way, and now I'm giving my life to you. You express that from the heart to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit of God will take up residence within you and will fill you with the living water of a relationship with God. Some of you, that is the action step for you today. That is the response.
but you might be here and you might be a Christian and you might say, Josh, I have a relationship with Christ, but I still feel unsatisfied. If I have the living water, why do I thirst so much? It could be that like me, you've been going to broken cisterns. You have access to the living water, but you haven't been going there. You've been going to, if I could just be married, if I could just have kids, if I could just get promoted, and if I could just be acknowledged by my friends, if I could just lose 25 pounds. As a friend, if that's you, I'll just invite you to do what I have to do so often. I'd invite you to repent, to turn from those broken cisterns and to find in Christ your satisfaction. Or it could be you're just in a dry season. You're not, you're not going to the wrong places. You just don't feel the presence of God. You're like David in Psalm 42. He said, my soul, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and appear before him? If that's you, I just wanna encourage you to do what David did. Cry out, ask God to fill you and wait by faith. Lord, you created us for yourself and we find joy and we find pleasure and we find satisfaction in knowing and worshiping you. But for all those that are here that are thirsting because they're looking for satisfaction in a place they'll never find it, Lord, lead them to repent and believe. Fill them with the living water of your spirit. For those of us that are in Christ, Lord, would you teach us to go to him again and again and again, knowing that you are the one who satisfies. But we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in your name.